You're listening to The Ragged Edge. I'm Richard Stone. There's the thing that we all think we know about the Alamo, right. that some heroes made their last stand at the Alamo against overwhelming odds, knowing that they would die because they wanted to buy Sam Houston some time and they were fighting for liberty and against tyranny. And substantially none of that is true. So everything you think you know about the Alamo is wrong and we're still fighting about it today. My guest this week is Jason Stanford. His book, which he wrote with authors Chris Tomlinson and Brian Burrow, is called Forget the Alamo, The Rise and Fall of an American Myth. It was published earlier this month by Penguin Press and is an Amazon bestseller. Jason and I talked about how what we know of as the history of the Battle of the Alamo came to be, why it's been only fairly recently that those 13 days in Texas history have been subject to any kind of academic rigor, and the impact Phil Collins has had on the current debate. Yeah, that Phil Collins. Here's that conversation. Jason Stanford, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Hey, you know what? I can't even open my Twitter feed anymore these days without a uh, glowing book review or a glowing, hey, man, I'm so excited to get your book and read it. Uh, Either we're following the same people or you're social media people are really doing a hell of a job. (laughs) Well, thanks. I I think it's probably a little of both. We couldn't be more pleased about the reaction to the book, but I got to tell you, I will trade a hundred New York Times reviews for seeing one of my friends post a picture of them holding the book online. That means more to me than than anything you can possibly imagine. Yeah, I'll bet it does. The other thing that I can't help but seeing is you or one of your compatriots giving an interview on a podcast or, I mean, you know, part of my research to get ready for today is to see what you guys have already said, right? Mm. So that I'm hopefully asking questions that maybe you didn't get. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do that necessarily because y'all have been all over the place. One of you got one of your compatriots was on Terry Gross's Fresh Air, so you've made the Terry Gross machine. Man, that's excellent. Yep. That's that's yeah, that's good. That's big time. Yeah, regular people hear about that. I know. One of the things that I that I picked up on in one of the interviews was uh, you said the joys of racism hate mail. Mm. You must have thicker skin than I do because when I get racist hate mail, I'm, there's no joy involved in that. It's one of those things. If you're going to talk about the, the most cherished Texas myth about the Alamo and talk about how slavery was not the only cause, but a cause of, of the conflict, mm-hmm. then if you're not going to upset racists, then you really haven't done it right. Uh, that I mean, that wasn't our goal, clearly, right. to upset racists. But it is a good indicator that we did at least hit our target. And you must have had a little bit of deja vu watching the Texas legislature this year, especially as it debated critical race theory and out of what it, Governor Abbott just signed in the 1836 project. Um, yeah. And it just seemed like you guys were somewhat prescient when y'all decided to write this book. And uh, because right now everybody's talking about this exact thing. Right. Yeah. We had no idea it was going to land on our doorstep so elegantly that, you know, last weekend LULAC had a press, had a protest at the Alamo to teach the entire history. And one of their leaders was holding our book and they're facing off against a militia that we wrote about and they were holding AR-15s. And not in our wildest imagination did we imagine that Greg Abbott would go to the Alamo to sign the 1836 project and that the Washington Times this morning would write in their headline that this is a response to our book. We have right wing.
right-wing media out there saying that this is part of some big campaign by the left called Forget the Alamo, that this is that this is some giant conspiracy of leftists, socialists. Uh, we, we were just trying to tell the story, right. trying to tell it straight for once, because we'd read all the books about the Alamo in the course of, of figuring out how to write, how to attack this book. And no one had ever really told the story straight and connected it to what's happening today because it's not a separate fight. We just never stopped fighting about it. Yeah. You know, I grew up in Texas. I'm a third or fourth generation Texan, depending on who you ask. And uh, <laughs> I mean, we, there's some debate in the family. And, you know, I, I learned the typical, what do you call it? The heroic Anglo narrative when I was in school. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I won't say believed all of it. You know, Mitchner's Texas started peeling some of the layers away just a little bit, but nothing like what we've learned in, or what I've personally learned in the last, what, three years, maybe four years. Why is it, do you think, that it's been only fairly recently that that particular period of our history, that very critical part of our history, uh, was subject to uh, academic scrutiny? Uh, because uh, for a long time, it was, uh, well, for one thing, everyone died. Right? There were not a lot of first-hand accounts. Uh, you know, there were a lot of journalists and there were a lot of survivors at Gettysburg. Right. It's really hard to tell the story when half of everyone died. Uh, so, and for a long time, it, it was used initially as a source of uh, inspiration uh, for the troops uh, in in San Jacinto, but people kind of forgot about it for a long, long time. To the extent where it was used as an army depot, and then it was crumbling. And it was only early in the in the uh, 1900s that people get serious about preserving it. So it just was. It didn't hold the imagination initially for a long time. And so then hobbyists took over. There, you know, Clara Driscoll and Adina de Zavala uh, were fighting about it, and and the legislature got goaded into just handing it over to the dog of the Republic of Texas. So for a long time, a, an, an, you know, a, I forget what the word is, but, you know, you, you have to, it's like Daughters of the Republic of Texas. You have to, it's a lineage organization. Right, right. was in charge of this historical site. It wasn't treated as a historical site that needed to be preserved like any other historical site in Texas. It was the domain of doyens. You know, these, mm-hmm. a lot of feud, wealthy white women in San Antonio became, uh, you know, a prestige organization and not actually. So amateur hour lasted several decades. <laughs> And a lot, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of blue. It was the occasion for a lot of really, uh, you know, turgid uh, prose of, you know, a lot of fiction. Uh, the guy who did, uh, you know, forget the, who's, who's that old, uh, the racist filmmaker who did Birth of a Nation. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm sorry. I know what you're talking about though. Um, yeah. So he, yeah. Did, he did an Alamo movie, right? You know, right. and it was about as racist as you can imagine. So, you know, for a long time, it was just this uh, obsession with some people. Uh, so serious historians, and by that, I mean, back then, white, didn't mm-hmm. get involved. And the University of Texas enforced this more of the mythology than the actual history out of the history department. So the only historians in Texas in a position to do something about it were largely prevented from a long time. Mm -hmm. And because of the way the story was told and because of the way the action, you know, because of what we call kind of an ethnic cleansing followed the Texas Revolution, where Hispanics were dispossessed of their land all over South Texas. And, you know, Juan Seguin was run out of this. This became a, a white people story. And right. so the H- Hispanic academics backed off. Uh, and so it wasn't until the rise of the Chicano movement that, and that's when it really started to move forward. Okay. 
Yeah, th- and that makes sense. That's to learn that your heroes, right, that we grew up with were slave traders. Uh, you know, what did Fannin, was it Fannin or Bowie or one of them made the equivalent, yeah, today's equivalent of, of like $100,000 in slave trade right before this happened. I mean, you didn't right. you didn't necessarily go into some, some of that. Slave trade, right? Yeah. 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 It yeah. wasn't the slave trade. They were, they were breaking whatever laws existed then. You know, it was basically human trafficking. Right. Right. You know, I'm just making a supposition here that that may be part of why you're getting such pushback from the right and from, well, maybe not just the right, but from certain segments of Texas society is that it's difficult for you to view your heroes as being human traffickers. I guess that makes some sense. Yeah, it does make sense. So there's two things about that. You know, one is by and large, we've as long as I've been alive. You know, 50 years, I've always known that George Washington owned slaves. Right. And while that wasn't good, everyone's always said that that was bad and no one ever tried to explain it. It didn't take away from his contributions. And Thomas Jefferson, same thing, although that got a little more complicated as I got older. Right. That They still made real contributions. It's it's funny how this Texas myth is treated differently than our national myth. And I think a lot of it goes to how personal the Texas identity is to people and that we're, it's a personal threat that we are including in a lot and filling in a lot of the blank spots of Stephen F. Austin and Fannin and Jim Bowie, that they were complicated people and they did do bad things. And we're not saying they didn't also do some good things, but we're saying you can't really talk about this story without including the bad things because they are essential to why they ended up there in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. The, and, and that kind of goes back to the HB 39, 39, the critical race theory bill. It just seems and, I, and I've had this conversation with several people, a couple of them, like James Tallarica, who had the uh, brilliant back mm. mic conversation with uh, uh, Representative Toth uh, during the debate on that particular bill about, you know, what is it about white men? fragility that they can't accept that the myth, there's a reason for the myth. And the myth in and of itself isn't a bad thing. But what do they say? Historians, uh, people who read history are doomed to watch people repeat history or something like that. We, we've kind of start, talked about this a little bit, but what is your elevator talk on the book? Yep. There's the thing that we all think we know about the Alamo, right? that some heroes made their last stand at the Alamo against overwhelming odds, knowing that they would die because they wanted to buy Sam Houston some time and they were fighting for liberty and against tyranny. And substantially, none of that is true. So everything you think you know about the Alamo is wrong and we're still fighting about it. Today. And the book isn't just about the, the 13 days of glory or whatever you want to call it. It's about right. every single one of the battles of the Alamo up to and including the uh, Centipath and, and, and uh, George P. Bush's, mm-hmm. you know, that whole thing. You tell a, a piece in, in the intro about kind of how this started. Is that when you first learned? I mean, you grew up in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. What, prior to that conversation with your co-authors, what did you know about the Alamo? I, you know, I knew Davy Crockett died there and he was the guy from the Disney show. And, <laughs> uh, that, and that Pee Wee, you know, that there's no base. Primarily what anyone my age thinks about the Alamo, who's not from Texas, is that we know there's no basement. And as it turns out, there's a basement. <laughs> uh, under the gift shop. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. The Alamo, to me, the Alamo is a cultural artifact. It's a lot like Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it exists as, as part of our cultural literacy, and, but it's not part of my identity. Right. Uh, I remember when I wrote the book about uh, um, Rick Perry 10 years ago, that was the first time someone had mentioned to me that they were fighting about slavery at the Alamo. And I did five minutes of research and went, oh, well, I'll be damned. Yeah. Uh, but that was about it. 
Right. Um, I, so I don't take it as personally as other people do, but my family does go back to the 1870s in Texas. It's not like I don't have an attachment to this place. And I've mm-hmm. lived to, to, in Texas since I was 23, made two Texans. So I get what being a Texan is because I, I, I'm more Texan than I am anything else, but I don't have that DNA level attachment to the story. So I guess I, so for me, it wasn't a big transition of just, Oh, okay. This is what some people say is true. And then let's fill in all the blanks Uh, to someone like Brian, you know, who's a fairly worldly guy and he was born and raised in temple. And this was a huge shock to him. So yeah, he was, he was more like our target audience than anyone. People who thought they knew what the story was and, and, and need to figure out what the rest of it. I wish we had more time for a, a, a different conversation, although maybe we can bring some of it in, into today because this, this battle is being played out in, in all kinds of ways right now. And, you know, we mentioned earlier some of the uh, some of the state legislative actions. And I know you watch both the, what's going on in Congress and in Austin pretty closely because of your work in opposition research and things like that. Can you pinpoint what's happened that has led us to where we are right now, where we can't have civil conversations across the aisle? Yeah, the easy explanation is that this is a fight about identity and that people who had been previously marginalized are asserting their identity in a way that threatens the identity of the dominant culture. And that's why rich white people think they're under they're under attack. And that's why Alan West put out an email saying our book is attacking the Alamo. Of course, you can only understand that as a metaphor, right? We're not literally throwing rocks at the, right. the Alamo. We are attacking the idea of it. And that goes straight to the, the how people perceive themselves as Texans, that they are strong and that Texas is exceptional and that they are somehow culturally and their character is different than people from Oklahoma. And I'm not I don't disagree that with that particular. <laughs> I was going to say that might actually be true. Bless their hearts. But the idea that you're that the founders of Texas, that the creation myth of Texas might have something to do with slavery, mm-hmm. which was necessary to the cotton economy they're trying to establish at the time. Mm-hmm isn't intellectually a threatening idea. We're not trying to say, this isn't like the first time someone walked into a lab and said, oh, by the way, quantum quantum reality exists and everyone had to freak out. Right. You know, we're not fundamentally threatening the the academic architecture of, of this uh, story. This is widely accepted in academia. Historians kind of shrug at our conclusions. This is just the first time it's been talked about in popular mythology. This is like telling a kid that Santa Claus doesn't exist, but these are grownups acting this way. And it's because we're, we're threatening how they see themselves. Mm. Yeah, that keeps coming back to that. In the in the origin story, I'm sorry, in the in the introduction, y'all talk about how this came to be. I didn't realize how big a role Phil Collins has played in the in the in the current effort to renovate that at the Alamo Square. Can can you talk about that for just a minute? Yeah. The one of the fun things about this book is being able to to constantly say yes, that Phil Collins, and it's, <laughs> right. it's just a wonderful thing that. I remember when he don't when he became known as the owner of the biggest collection of Alamo memorabilia in the world, and you know, Rolling Stone did several articles about this. It became this kind of universal feel good article, a feel good story. And, and and the people in Texas, from Jerry Patterson to George P. Bush, all these people were so happy to have this wonderful collection and to build to plan a museum to feature it all. And 
Turns out, uh, kind of like the Alamo Mist story, it's not really what it's cracked up to be. Yeah, yeah. I, I was so fascinated to, to learn that much of the memorabilia, and I'm using air quotes around that, that Collins possesses came from, mm. what, three tra- three an- uh, antique traders? Uh, mm-hmm. And that's and almost everybody else who's looked at this stuff said, are saying, well, maybe, but not likely. Does he care that he got duped? I don't know. Uh, I suspect he might feel a little embarrassed. I know I would. Or he might be telling himself that he's privately some of these people. Some people were questioning and and pushing back a little bit on it. And what the funny thing is, is he's not so much an Alamo traditionalist that he's unwilling to accept that slavery had a role in this. I saw him on a, a panel in 2016, and he's perfectly comfortable with talking about the entire history of the place and the complicating factors. And he talked about how he, as a child, he believed in the myth and his his appreciation for the more complicated history has grown over time. So I think he, he can accept these things a little more. And he doesn't come from a political background, so I'm not sure... You know, the guy who sold hundreds of millions of records and filled stadia all over the world is really going to be crushed to find this out. What the funny thing to me was, is apparently this was kind of an open secret in the collection community, in the in the memorabilia community. We didn't really have to press a lot of these experts too hard at all. We just had to get them on the phone before they started talking about this. Wow. It's it's it, what is shocking to me is how unexamined this story went for a long time. We got incredibly lucky. We were writing the story at a time when journalism jobs are being decimated because this story should not have kept for uh, seven years. Right. And Texas, the state of Texas has put, what, almost half a billion dollars up to build a, a museum that it looks like it's housing a bunch of fakes. Right. There's a smaller museum being built on the Alamo grounds right now. Uh-huh. Uh, and that was always planned. And so some things will be displayed there, but not not the controversial, not the items in question right now. And I think altogether, the city and state have put up, I think, under $200 million. Another $300 million would be needed to build the big museum that they've been talking about. And it is up in, in Dan Patrick I didn't even ask for that money to be appropriated in, in this session. So I don't know that that's ever going to happen. Well, sounds like we may have dodged a bullet, so to speak, on that one. What else do you want people to know about this book? Well, I wanted to know that uh, a couple of things. One, we have the uh, inside story on how the daughters of the Republic of Texas actually lost the Alamo. That's never really been told before. And uh, I'm really proud that we got that story in there. And the only time anywhere in the state standards that we require that certain people are, are portrayed as heroic to school children as the Alamo. We're not talking about World War II, not the Revolutionary War. No other time in the history of the world is anyone a hero by law except the defenders of the Alamo. And when that went down in 2017, everyone got that wrong. Yeah. Everyone misreported that story. And I am so happy we got the real story of how that went down. And that's a funny little story involving a really well-meaning, really good guy uh, who's an Alamo traditionalist in his own way. Stephen Kubert, and I'm really proud that we got that in there. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, if you want to find out how we're still fighting about it today, um, th- this is the book to read. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, and I've got to congratulate you. And I'm not. I, I saw saw one piece where you kind of talked about how how hard how difficult it can be to work with two other authors, and you know, to try to f- try to match the voice throughout the the length of the narrative. I have to congratulate you because this is a very contemporary read and and a I kind of say it a fun read right I'm good uh and 
I particularly appreciate the on-page footnotes. How did that come? Yeah. Up? How did that come about? I mean, some of that stuff. You you guys do a really good job keeping the snark level down to a point that it's not. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't overtake the, the the basic narrative. But that's the one place that you guys almost lose it. I think. But that's I absolutely appreciated and enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed everything else in the book. I appreciate good snark when delivered appropriately. I appreciate that. Yeah, the um, it was us commenting back and forth on each other. Yeah, you know, and. And the other part was uh, our first draft was was way too long. And so a lot of things had to get moved down to footnotes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That makes sense. Well, Jason, thank you so much. I um, uh, I know you're busy and I appreciate you taking a few minutes out of out of your day running the communications department for Austin ISD. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate you taking a few few minutes out of your day to do this. I wish you the best on the book. You're are you a. You're an Amazon bestseller now, right? Uh, have you hit the New York Times list yet? Well, yeah, we got that going for us. Yeah, if uh, yeah, so uh, but Richard, thank you so much for having me on. If if, uh, if this isn't the best part of my day, I'm going to have a really good rest of my day. So this is <laughs> this is a lot of fun. Well, thank you very much, sir. I appreciate it, and uh, I'd like to get you back on one day to talk about uh, state politics. But I'm a little burned out. Oh God, I'm, I'm talking about something nice. <laughs> Okay, we can talk about something nice then. I got to tell you, I really had a fantastic time when Sonya came on the show and we talked about Star Trek. That got way nerdier than I thought it was going to go. I overheard that conversation and that was exactly as nerdy as I thought it would be. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad I'm glad that met somebody's expectations then. Yes. All right, Jason. That was wonderful. Thank you very much, sir. And we will talk again. Richard, thank you. Well, that's the show. I want to thank my guest, Jason Stanford. He publishes a very good weekly newsletter, and I recommend it. Subscribe at jasonstanford.substack.com. A reminder, you can help people find The Ragged Edge when you rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you found it. And please share it with your friends so we can build our audience. The Ragged Edge is a production of RTS Connect, helping public-facing organizations make their point, then stay on point. Info at rtsconnect.org. Original theme music composed and performed by Ryan Stone. Hey, thanks, man. Thanks for listening to The Ragged Edge. See you next week. Thank you.